This morning, something a little different. We've finished our verse-by-verse study through uh, Paul's letters to Timothy, Titus, and uh, Philemon last week. But I want to, this morning, undertake a new series. Uh, I'm not sure how many weeks this will go on for, but a few certainly. And the, the overall kind of theme is life's greatest mystery. And I, I think it, as we go through, you'll start to understand uh, where we're going with it. But let's just, just bow our hearts, just pray that God uh, uses this time this morning and uh, subsequent weeks to really just build our faith, our confidence. Let's pray. Father, we just give you this time. Lord, speak to our hearts, we pray. Uh, Father, we pray also for all those that would have opportunity to listen to this recording, um, to look at these slides. Uh, Lord, we pray they would be challenged. Lord, we pray that you remove from people's minds and hearts, Lord, any excuse, any barrier that would stop them coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we just pray um, for your blessing now upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if we were to ask the question, what is life's greatest question? There's possibly a number of candidates, but I guess we could say that does God exist has got to be right up there amongst the biggest questions, whether you're religious or not. You know, and throughout history, there's been all sorts of attempts by all sorts of people to try and prove God's existence. You know, whatever you stand, whatever viewpoint, I think there's some common ground that generally we can all have in acknowledging at least that this is a big question. Uh, I don't know whether you saw this this week, there was more talk about the God particle and there's been all sorts of questions raised about this. You know, we see the effect, the world and everything around us. There must have been a cause. And this is a kind of the, the really the idea behind this God particle. Where did it all start? Where did it all begin? Can we explain the origins of everything and so on? And, and this week on BBC, they had this article about this hunt, this search for dark energy, uh, acknowledging that there's so much of the galaxy and the universe that we don't really understand. Uh, and this kind of went on talking about the idea of there being a multiverse. Now, this is quite interesting because it fits right, fits right in with what the Bible's already said and has said for centuries that there's not so much extra terrestrial life you know that there's all sorts of well, billions of pounds that are spent on the search for extra terrestrial life but the real question is is it actually extra dimensional life and that's what the bible's maintained you know the whole idea of the multiverse theory is that parallel to our universe there could be other life that exists that we can't see because it's in a different realm to our own well again that's exactly what the bible has always maintained and science is kind of catching up with these ideas and it's interesting that these fields of studies are heading in that direction so again that question does god exist whether you believe in god or not it is a fundamental question that really everybody should have some sort of interest in you know it's a kind of question that we need to know the answer to Now, of course, many people would say, we can't know the answer to that question. But a little while ago, about 18 months ago, I talked through for the uh, Carriage Chapel School of Ministry, uh, a course on apologetics. Uh, And we went through a whole load of different things, looking at the the basis for what we believe. Now, uh, we had some skeptics amongst the course. By the time we got to the end of the course, everybody believed that God really is who God says he is, that Jesus really is the Son of God, and that the Bible is God's word. And we went through a whole load of different proofs. Just to give you a better background if you're not familiar already, apologetics is actually a Greek term. 
It comes from two root words that mean to speak away. Plato uh, had his famous book um, where he laid down a defense for Socrates uh, regarding the charges that had been brought against him in about 399 BC. And so the term from that point becomes used for any defense that's made uh, in regard to an individual or a set of beliefs or situation. Um, so apologetics has come to mean any reasoned and structured response to those that would be in opposition, any detractors, antagonists, skeptics and the like. Now, from a Christian perspective, it's really the marshalling together evidence into a structure that will demonstrate in a clear and a forceful yet sensitive way the credibility and the reasonableness of the Christian faith. Now, my definition of this, of apologetics, is the art of causing people to think. You know, we've said many a time that we live in a world that actually encourages people not to think. The whole amusement uh, industry that we have today is all about encouraging people not to think, not to use their own minds. Interestingly enough, even our education system, you'll occasionally hear people talking about the idea of thinking critically And yet, that's exactly what schools try and avoid doing. You know, things like evolution are presented to children in schools today, and they're not encouraged to ask questions. In fact, if they do ask questions and they question the status quo, they're normally ridiculed, shot down in flames, or marginalized. And, of course, if we do start to think, we're going to come up with all sorts of questions, which is really what we should be doing. You see, I've said before as well, that people don't reject Christianity because of the lack of evidence, but because they have been led to believe that no evidence exists. I challenge you to challenge anybody you know that doesn't believe in God, in Jesus, in the Bible. I challenge you to challenge them as to why they don't believe. And I guarantee you that the most common reason will be because they don't think it's true. Because they don't think there's enough evidence to support the claim. They think it is just a a faith thing or a belief thing. And of course they equate belief with emotion, but not with facts. And we have this constant thing that we have belief on one side and we have science and logic and reason on the other. What I want to try and show to you is that that's not the case at all. And actually, the majority of of sincere, born-again, Bible-believing Christians believe what they believe, not on the basis of faith, but on the basis of evidence, on the basis of facts. And if you this morning feel that what you believe is purely a faith-based thing, well, okay, no problem with that intrinsically, but actually even Jesus himself encouraged the disciples to look at evidence. On the day of his resurrection, um, he encourages them, handle me and see, he says. The Spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as I have. You know, he doesn't just say, oh, take it on faith, guys. No, he, he, he appeals to them to base their belief on physical evidence. In fact, Luke writes his gospel from the basis of proving that what he was writing was based upon eyewitness accounts of events that actually took place. The whole of the New Testament really is given over. It's an intellectual defense of the Christian faith. It's not just a, well, this is what we believe, let's all go along with it kind of thing. Now, There are a number of typical, classical, apologetic arguments that are presented. And as some of you, if you can remember back to school, and some of you will go through this in school, 
you get various things that are presented. The cosmological argument is one of them. And that's the whole idea that the world and the universe must have had an origin and a cause. Now, of course, people will put that down to just blind chance and nature and so on, but that really doesn't answer the question. You've got to have a cause. What was the, the cause? What was the reason? How did it all happen? Why are we here? So that cosmological argument is one of the things that's put forward. The idea, of course, that nothing can't create everything. Uh, and again, even if you give nothing billions of years, it doesn't change that problem. And of course, if you then start with matter, you have a, an equally big problem because matter itself is subject to the physical laws. The second law of thermodynamics, for example, which says that everything is running down. So if you have matter, doesn't matter how infinitely small you compress that matter into, if it had been around forever, it would have wound down, it would have entropied before it had a chance to bang. Uh, there wouldn't have been a big bang. So we have to come to that conclusion, and science has accepted this, that there has to be a beginning. Now isn't it interesting that the opening words of the Bible are in the beginning? It starts with a scientific statement, a scientific fact. And again, the idea that you know this universe or whatever has been around forever doesn't make any sense at all because there would be no more available energy if that was the case. Everything would have reached a uniform temperature. You know, eventually, if you if you have different things in different temperatures, eventually everything will reach the same place. Well, the universe clearly is not there. So that's just a very simple, clear proof that there was a beginning. We've not been around forever. If there was a beginning, how did it begin? So that's one of the arguments that's presented. There's another argument, the teleological argument that's put forward, and it's simply saying that we can observe design in nature. You've got uh, DNA, of course, which is this digital error-correcting code. It's incredible. I mean, of course, Darwin and, and those, you know, Hutton and Lyle at that time knew nothing about DNA. And yet, now, with this incredible discovery, people still try and argue that it could have arisen by chance. That's like saying an alphabet could come about by chance. If you just think about that for a second, think about the letters we have in our alphabet. Even if the letters could form the shapes that they are by chance, it's meaningless. Why? Because the only reason an alphabet has any meaning is because we ascribe meaning to each of those letters. So there has to be, for uh, an alphabet like we have with DNA, a language like we have with DNA, it, it screams intelligence. It can't just naturally occur through, through random processes. And of course, then there's symmetry. Everywhere we look, you know, our own bodies, you look at you know, the nature around us, you look at butterflies, you look at all these things, we see incredible symmetry. And this is again one of the arguments that is presented as proof or a good argument to suggest there must be a deity, a god, or a higher power of some description. Again, if there's design, there must be a designer who's outside of that creation. And we use the argument, again, if you see a building, you don't have to see the builder to know that there was a builder. If you see a painting, there must have been a painter. We look at creation, again, there must be a creator. And then there's the moral argument that's put forward. Man has an inbuilt sense of rights and wrong. And these are non-physical attributes. You know, they can't be the, the uh, 
the product of chemical or biological evolution because they're not concerning the physical world. These are things that are outside of the physical. You know, things like love and hatred and justice and righteousness and so on, which we have an understanding and a concept of. Those things are not physical things. And yes, people may argue that, you know, certain things you love, they'll talk about various chemicals that are released in our, our brain and so on that trigger certain emotions. But it doesn't answer this problem or this, this, this issue of these things that we experience. That we know, why do we have a sense of justice? Why do we have a sense of right and wrong? And so this sense of morality, again, it suggests it has to come from a moral creator. Interestingly, C.S. Lewis said this, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. And then he says, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Interesting comment, isn't it? Another argument that's put forward is the anthropological argument. And this again is that man has this inbuilt sense of a higher power. You know, every religion throughout the history of the world, every belief system has this idea of a higher power. You know, all cultures from all ages have some form of belief in God or gods or whatever. A man is prone to cry out to that which is outside of himself, both in regard to worship and also salvation. And so the argument is then put forward, if we have this inbuilt capacity for God, deity must exist in some form or another. And then there's the, the ontological argument that's often put forward. And again, these are the classical things that, that children get taught in schools, and if you do studies in these things, you'll go through. You know, and the idea here is if we conceive, if we can conceive an infinite being, a perfect being, and yet we recognize that we ourselves are imperfect and finite, well, that idea of an infinite being must have come from him rather than us. Now, all of these things combined lead to statements like this uh, by J. Warner Wallace, uh, who wrote the book Cold Case Christianity. He said this, I'm not a Christian today because I was raised that way or because it satisfies some need or accomplishes some goal. I'm simply a Christian because it is evidentially true. Now, when you look at those things we've just mentioned and you logically approach it without any emotion and trying to prove one thing or another, you can't help but come to the conclusion there has to be a God. There has to be an authority, a power that's outside of our realm. Now, that doesn't prove the God of the Bible. It doesn't prove the Bible's true. But that's typically the arguments that are presented. Now, alongside those classical arguments, there's many other things that we can appeal to. And certainly to verify and to prove that which we believe as Christians, there are so many things. And this isn't a a definitive list by any means. There's just some categories to put up there. So the first one, just to mention, and I'm not going through all of these in detail this morning, but I just want to lay a foundation. The first one, historical. Can we prove that God exists, that the Bible is true from history? Well, overwhelmingly, yes, we can. I mean, this is, this is quite staggering. You've got a, a book that was written by a man by the name of Robert Dick Wilson. He was an incredible scholar. The book was called A Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament. Now, we talk about experts, you know, and, and people like to quote and cite experts all the time, don't they? But this man really, truly was an expert in every sense of the word. 
He could read and write 45 ancient Semitic languages. Some of us have trouble with just one of those. Uh, certainly writing, I'm not, my, my spelling is not uh, all that. You know, and but to have somebody that has that knowledge to be able to read and write languages that we don't even use today, that's quite impressive on its own. At the age of 25, he could read the New Testament in nine languages. He had memorized the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. I find it incredible there are some believers that have not read the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. This man had memorized the whole of the New Testament. He also had many of the Old Testament books memorized in Hebrew. This guy really was an expert. And he made this statement. He said, for 45 years continuously, I have devoted myself to one great study of the Old Testament. In all of its languages, in all of its archaeology, in all of its translations. He says, the critics of the Bible who go to it in order to find fault claim to themselves all knowledge, all virtue, all love of the truth. And one of their favorite phrases is, all scholars agree. Well, when a man says that, I wish to know who the scholars are and what they agree on. Where do they get their evidence? I defy any man to make an attack on the Old Testament on the ground of evidence that I cannot investigate. And he says this, After I learned the necessary languages, I set about the investigation of every single consonant in the Hebrew Old Testament. There are about 1,250,000 of them. It took me many years to achieve my task. I had to observe the variations in the text, in the manuscripts, the notes of the Masoretes, in all their various versions and parallel passages and contextual emendations of critics, And then I had to classify the results of every character, every consonant, to reduce the Old Testament criticism to an absolutely objective science, something that is based on evidence and not opinion. The result of those 45 years of study, which I have given to the text, has been this. I can affirm that there is not a page of the Old Testament concerning which you need have any doubt. And then he says this. For example, to illustrate its accuracy, there are 29 ancient kings whose names are mentioned not only in the Bible, but also on monuments we've uncovered of their own time. There are 195 consonants in those 29 proper names. Yet we find that in the documents of the Hebrew Old Testament, there are only two consonants out of the 195 that have ever been called into question. The names are all in exactly the same way as they have been inscribed on their monuments, which archaeologists have dated and discovered. Some of these go back 4,000 years. And then he says, compare this with the accuracy of the greatest scholar of his age, the librarian at Alexandria in Egypt, around about 200 BC. He compiled a catalogue of the kings of Egypt, there's 38 in all, of the entire number, only three or four were recognisable. He also made a list of the kings of Assyria. And in only one case can we tell him he's talking about. And that one's not spelt correctly. Or take Ptolemy, who drew up a register of 18 kings of Babylon. Not one of them is properly spelt. You could not make them out at all if you did not know some of them from the outside sources. Anyone talks about the Bible, ask you about the kings mentioned in it. Again, there are 29 kings referred to, 10 different countries among these 29, all of which are included in the Bible and on the monuments. So these things that have been discovered by archaeologists. Every one of these is given their right name in the Bible, 
in their right country, in their right place, in correct chronological order. Think what this means, he says. If you wanted proof that the Bible is accurate historically and that history also verifies the Bible, you're not going to get a better statement than that from somebody who really was an expert. I guarantee you're not going to bump into somebody or you're not going to find people in your families that have got greater knowledge and understanding than that. But there's more. Some of you know Dr. Bill Cooper. He's a great scholar. He's the vice president of the creation science movement uh, based here in Portsmouth. But he also serves as an adjunct professor of the, uh, of the master faculty at the Institute for Creation Research uh, School of Biblical Apologetics. Now, Bill's in-depth research has led to some groundbreaking discoveries. Um, he's had books published by the British Library and so on. Um, but in this book, After the Flood, which we've got on the back table over there, Bill traces the kings and queens of England all the way back to Noah. Now, there are people that would quite happily dismiss the flood and say it never occurred. This is all fiction. Bill actually traces the kings and queens. They're in Lambeth Palace in London. There is a genealogy, again, that shows this. The kings and queens of this country all the way back to Noah. And it demonstrates the historical accuracy of the biblical record. I just want to read from Bill's own words. He says this, It is commonly thought in this present age that nothing is worthy of our belief unless it can first be scientifically demonstrated and observed to be true. It was assumed without further inquiry that nothing, and especially the early portions of the Bible, a biblical record, could be demonstrated to be true and factual. And this applied particularly to the book of Genesis. In other words, we were solemnly assured in the light of modern wisdom that historically speaking, the book of Genesis was simply not worth the paper it was written on. On the one hand, I had the Bible itself claiming to be the very word of God, and on the other I was presented with numerous commentaries that spoke with one voice in telling me that the Bible was nothing of the kind. It was merely a hotchpotch collection of Middle Eastern myths and fables that sought to explain the world in primitive terms. Now, it simply was not possible for both of these claims to be valid. Only one of them could be right. So it was then that I decided to select a certain portion of Genesis and submit it to a test which, if applied to any ordinary historical document, would be considered a test of the most unreasonable severity. And I would continue that test until either the book of Genesis revealed itself to be false, a false account or it would be shown to be utterly reasonable in its historical statements. What I had not expected at the time was the fact that the task was to engage my attention and energies for more than 25 years. The test that I devised was a simple one. If the names of the individuals, families, peoples and tribes listed in the table of the nations were genuine, then those same names should appear also in the records of other nations in the Middle East. It was simply not realistic to expect that every name would have been recorded in the annuals of the ancient Middle East, and also would have survived to the present day, I therefore would have been content to have found, say, 40% of the list vindicated. In fact, that would have been a very high achievement given the sheer antiquity of the table of nations. Let's just talk about Genesis 10 and 11, where we have the list of all the nations that descended from, from Shem, Ham, Japheth, and so on. 
He says, uh, the, the sheer antiquity of the table nations and the reported scarcity of the surviving extra-biblical records from those ancient times. So basically what Bill was doing was going out, seeing if he could find secular records, monuments or writings that corroborated what the Bible said. And he says this, but when over my 25 years of research, that confirmatory, uh, uh, sorry, confirmatory evidence grew past 40% to 50%, and then 60% and beyond, it soon became apparent the modern wisdom in this matter was wide of the mark. Very wide of the mark indeed. Today I can say that the names so far vindicated in the table of nations make up over 99% of the list. And I shall make no further comment on that other than to say that no ancient historical document of purely human authorship could be expected to yield such a level of corroboration as that. So when you open up the Bible and you look in Genesis 10 and you look in Genesis 11 and you see the nations and the, the, the countries that are listed there, you're reading a historical document that has been proven to be accurate. So from a historical perspective... Yes, the Bible can be trusted. What about from a scientific perspective? Because people love to put science on one side and religion and Christianity and so on on the other. Well, it's interesting. If you go to the opening statement of the Bible, I've already said the Bible begins with this statement in the beginning. We know now that the Bible was absolutely right. All the years that science and so on said that the universe had been here forever, no, the Bible said that there was a beginning. We now know that the Bible was right and science has eventually caught up. But the opening statement says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We've got an incredible statement there because we've got time, which is made up of past, present and future. We've got space, which is length, width and height. And we've got matter, which is really effectively solid, liquid and gas. A trinity of trinities in that opening verse of the Bible. It's a truly incredible scientific statement that really sums up our reality. There's so many examples we could pick on, but if we go to the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, roughly about 1000 BC, we read this, The wind goes toward the south and turns about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. And then it says, all the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. I mean, are we seeing here the world's first meteorologist? You know, this is a statement of fact that we now know to be true, a scientific statement about the wind patterns, the wind currents, and so on, and the circuits that the wind has. You know, we all look at our weather forecasts, and we have these patterns, and we see things, and people talk about the jet stream, and so on. But in a a document that we have here, a biblical document, a thousand BC recorded, stating that these things were so, before the modern world caught up with this. The statement about the rivers running into the sea. You've got the hydro cycle there. Again, clearly depicted for us in verse 7 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. 
Again, no other writings of antiquity are so full of scientifically verifiable facts. And we could spend the entire morning just going through fact after fact after fact that are recorded in the Bible, that have been proven to be scientifically accurate. And there's many technology statements as well. I mean, even regarding weapons technology, there's lots of scriptures, and there's a few listed there on the screen, that allude to what we see today. Medicine and hygiene, so much of what we now know we found was recorded in the Bible some, well, three, four thousand years ago. The idea of circumcision that was to take place on the eighth day, we now know it's the best day to circumcise an infant because the vitamin K is at its strongest. It peaks at 110% of normal on that day. Now this was before they had the technology. How do they have this information? Pathways in the sea, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. The meteorological cycle we just mentioned is mentioned in Ecclesiastes and in Job. The idea of global TV coverage being one day a possibility alluded to in Matthew and Revelation. The idea of electronic funds transfer, again alluded to in Matthew, Revelation 13 and so on. The idea that the earth is a sphere is spoken of in scripture. You know, many religions and many people believe for a long time the earth was flat and we sat on the back of a giant elephant or all these giant turtles, just bizarre things. The Bible never makes such preposterous claims. It only deals with things that are verifiable. The idea of subatomic particles, again, alluded to Hebrews 11 verse 3. And many other things that we could talk about. From a scientific perspective, the Bible has never made or been shown to make any statement that is not scientifically true. We could talk about mathematical evidence for the Bible. You know, I'm sure you're familiar that numbers are often used to represent concepts and ideas throughout the Bible. And typically the number seven multiples thereof are always associated with the idea of complete. And again, it's another evidence of deliberate supernatural design. This is not something that could occur naturally. And we see it throughout the Bible. We've got seven days in a week. Why is it we have seven days in a week? Yeah, people have tried over the centuries to change that. People have tried 10 day weeks and other various options they've tried. It doesn't work. Why is it we have a seven day week? I mean, the only answer you're going to find is in the Bible. The seven colors in the rainbow. Seven branches on the menorah. That's the Jewish lampstand. The seven years of plenty. The seven years of famine in Egypt with Joseph. The seven priests. The seven trumpets that marched around Jericho. Solomon's building the temple took seven years. Naaman was told to go and wash in the river Jordan seven times to heal his leprosy and so on. In the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13, the seven letters to seven churches in Revelation, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven bold judgments in Revelation again. That's just on the surface. If we start digging into the text, there's even more. Uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with uh, Dr. Ivan Panin. He was uh, this Russian uh, genius. He spent over 50 years of his life, this is without the aid of computers, painstakingly exploring the numerical structure in the Bible. He generated over 43,000 detailed hand-penned pages of analysis. Right, and he's this book, The Seal of God, charts and lists some of those things. I'm just going to quote here from F.C. Payne, who wrote The Seal of God. He said, The marvelous things God has permitted to be revealed in recent years has placed the Bible like a beacon high above the crumbling ruins of the theories of his critics. Any person who scoffs at the Bible today is simply manifesting their ignorance of revealed facts. I just want to go back to that opening statement I made. There's so many people reject 
the Bible, the idea of God, not because of evidence, but because they don't believe evidence exists. And the church, you and I, I believe have a duty to let people know that the evidence does exist. Ivan Panning's findings show that not only the surface text is filled with numerical patterns, but the very words and the letters themselves are specifically chosen to fit mathematical models. You know that opening sentence of the Bible? 28, 7 times 4, Hebrew letters. Jesus really wasn't joking when he said that not one jot or tittle, in other words, not the smallest details will pass from the law until it will be fulfilled. Every detail is there by deliberate supernatural design. Now, in our, I've done this a number of times with different people, and in the School of Ministry course we, we tried this, to write out a genealogy. You just try and think about doing this, whether it's real or imaginary, uh, you know, just a list of, of names of people that you know, descended from each other. Uh, just a few conditions, though. That the number of words that you use in this genealogy, genealogy have got to be divisible by seven evenly. Now, probably you could do that. You'd have to work it a little bit and count up your number of words and make sure that however many, many words in your genealogy with the number of names and so on, that it's divisible by seven. Okay, that's, that's, that's probably doable. But then if I said that I want the number of letters that you use, the total number, also to be divisible by seven, evenly. Now that becomes a bit more of a challenge. Again, probably a number of attempts to try and do this, but you know you could probably just about do that. But then if I said, I want you to make the number of vowels divisible by seven, now that becomes a little bit more complicated, doesn't it? As if I said also the number of consonants to be divisible by seven, you're starting to say, go away, go do something else with your time, because I'm not going to do this. Between the number of words that begin with a vowel to be divisible by seven, and the number of words that begin with a consonant also to be divisible by seven. And if we added to that that the number of words that occur more than once to be divisible by seven, or the words that occur in more than one form to be divisible by seven, or the words that occur in only one form to be divisible by seven, or the number of nouns to be divisible by seven, and only seven words not to be nouns. The number of names in your entire genealogy that you're going to write out, they need to be divisible by seven. And only seven other kinds of nouns are permitted. The number of male names that you use in your genealogy genealogy need to be divisible by seven. But also the number of generations to be divisible by seven. I mean, who thinks they could do something like that? Even with the aid of a computer. It's been estimated that to accidentally create a genealogy like this with 34 features, if you could complete 400 million attempts per second, which I think any of you would find a challenge, it would still take 100,000, sorry, uh, 1 million supercomputers, 4.3 million years to achieve this. All right? And that's writing out this, some 400 million attempts per second. I mean, it's just, you get the idea how impossible something like that is to arrive at by chance. And yet, that is the genealogy of Jesus as found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, in the Greek. Now, Ivan Pannon identified over 75 features that conform to this structure. It really is undeniable evidence. And based on this 50 years of research, Pannon stated this, the Bible could not possibly have been written except by the inspiration of God himself. Now, that claim 
was investigated by the Noble Research Foundation of Los Angeles. Not a Christian body at all. And their verdict was this. So far as our investigation has proceeded, we find the evidence overwhelmingly in favor of such a statement. This is a non-Christian group that looked at the evidence and they basically went, yep, this can't occur by natural means. This is supernatural. I'm not going to go through all of these. I just want to just do it quickly on a geographical sense. Uh, there's a man by the name of Matthew Fontaine Moray. Um, he was born back in 1806 in America, Virginia. Um, he was an avid Bible reader. Uh, and he was struck by a particular reference in Psalm 8 that spoke about the paths in the seas or pathways in the sea. Uh, and he noticed, like, again, Isaiah also wrote about a path through the mighty waters. Now, this led to him asking the question, are there pathways in the sea? You know, it's not the kind of thing you just imagine or come up with. Why did these writers comment on it? Um, he entered the Navy in America in 1825 as a midshipman. And by 1842, he was placed in charge of the Depot of Charts and Instruments. Uh, and from that grew the U.S. Naval Observatory and Hydrographic Office. And their idea, the idea was to gather information on maritime winds and currents. And Moray distributed to ship captains specially prepared logbooks so that they could plot charts when they were out on their voyages. And it enabled him to shorten the journey times of these sea voyages that were being undertaken at that time. In 1848, he published maps of the main wind fields of the earth. Uh, and again, he was ultimately able to produce charts of the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans, uh, a profile of the Atlantic seabed, and really is the first modern oceanographic text. Uh, he's recognized as the father of oceanography, but remember where this started. It started from somebody who had a belief in the Bible, that the Bible is something we can take seriously. He took that as a scientific statement of fact, went out, investigated it, and you know what? He found it to be absolutely true, and modern science has benefited from that work. And there are many other things we could look at from a geological perspective. I'm not even going to begin with biological, but you start to look at the human brain or the human eye, the the respiratory system, all these kinds of the human nervous system. The suggestion that it's random, that it came about by chance, is ludicrous. It's so complex, it's so detailed, and it's self-repairing. I mean, mankind can make all sorts of machines, but try and make one that fixes itself... And that's a whole other game. And then there's things like the astronomical evidence and proof for God. I mean, we talk about the zodiac, and of course there's horoscopes and so on that the world kind of gets lost in and, and deceives itself with. But the Bible speaks about the Maseroth. Now this was what really was there before it got corrupted in Babylon and so on. Now, the Maseroth, really what we have there, with every constellation, is a group of stars. Each of the stars have names. In ancient Persian and Arabian tradition, ascribe the invention of astronomy, not astrology, astronomy, to Seth, to Adam, to Seth, and Enoch. That they gave the stars names to tell a story. And each of these stars and these groups tell a story. And the picture that we have, which has got corrupted today, so don't bother with looking at the pictures and trying to make sense of those. Because if you look at the, the, the pictures that we have, they don't look, if you, if you join the dots together of the stars in the constellations, they don't make the pictures they're supposed to. But the stars, the names of those stars do tell a story. And that story starts with Virgo the Virgin, 
And it goes through and it tells an entire story all the way around to Leo the lion. It tells the gospel story. And it's staggering. If you dig into this, if you do some research in this, you see that what was begun in Genesis is completed in Revelation. In Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day unto speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. You know, how did the ancient cultures understand God's plan? Because clearly they did. People like Melchizedek and others understood so much of God's plan. Well, because the gospel was revealed to them in the stars. So why don't we have that today? We don't need it today. We've got the Bible. Before the Bible was given to us, this was a way that God allowed ancient cultures to understand his plan. This verse goes on and says, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Well, it's true that this this idea of, as we would refer to the Maseroth, the Zodiac, is the same in all cultures. Their line has gone out throughout the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. And I love this, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from one end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. I mean, critics have challenged this and then they realize that the sun is moving through the solar system, through the galaxy. And we're kind of all moving at the same time with the sun. Every statement that the Bible makes like this has been proven to be true. I'm not even going to begin talking about archaeological evidence. You only need to go to the British Museum. If anybody's got a free lunchtime and they want to come, I'm more than happy to go around and show you the overwhelming evidence. Everything that, that we can... Well, there's so many things we can look at that prove that the statements in the Bible were true, that it's based upon historical events, things that really took place. And then, of course, going on from there, there's the Bible itself. And I'm going to borrow a quote from Casting Crowns. It says, The Bible was inscribed over a period of 2,000 years in times of war and in days of peace by kings, physicians, tax collectors, farmers, fishermen, singers and shepherds. The marvel is that a library so perfectly cohesive could have been produced by such a diverse crowd over a period of time which staggers the imagination. Just very quickly, the Talmud this Jewish uh, document, list of rules in a sense, it lists more than a dozen rules that were there for the copying of the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. It's like a built-in security system to make sure that when it was copied, it wasn't corrupted. And even if just one of those factors is lacking, it wouldn't possess the sanctity of a Torah scroll, and it was not allowed to be used for public reading. Now, this particular, pro- particular process of hand-copying a scroll would take around about 2,000 hours. That's roughly a full-time job for a year for somebody to write out a hand-copy of this Torah scroll, which they repeatedly did. Now, throughout the centuries, Jewish scribes have adhered to the following guidelines. Number one, the parchment has to be made from the skin of a clean animal. That means ceremonially clean. And it must be prepared by a Jew only. The skins must be fastened together by strings taken from clean animals. Each column that they write out must have no less than 48 and not more than 60 lines in it. The entire copy must first be lined. A, scr- a Torah scroll is disqualified if even a single letter is added. A Torah scroll is disqualified if a single letter is deleted. The scribe must be a learned, pious Jew who has undergone special training and certification. 
All the materials, the parchment, the ink, the quill, must conform to strict specifications and be prepared specifically for the purpose of writing a Torah scroll. The scribe may not write even one letter in a Torah scroll from memory, but rather he must have a second kosher scroll opened before him at all times, and he's doing a direct copy. The scribe must pronounce every word out loud before copying it from the correct text. Every letter must have sufficient white space around surrounding it. If one letter touched another in any spot, it invalidates the entire scroll. Imagine getting to the end of December and you've almost finished and then you smudge a little bit and the whole thing's ripped up and you've got to start again. If a single letter was so mild that it cannot be read at all or resembles another letter, whether the defect is in the writing or is due to a hole or tear or smudge, it invalidates the entire scroll. Each letter must be sufficiently legible so that even an ordinary schooled, uh, school child could distinguish it from, another, from other similar letters. The scribe must, be, uh, must put precise space between words so that one word will not look like two words or two words look like one word. The scribe must not alter the design of the sections and must conform to the particular line lengths and paragraph configurations. The ink must be of no other color than black and it must be prepared according to a special recipe. He must reverently wipe his pen each time before writing the word for God, Elohim, and he must wash his whole body before writing the name Jehovah or Lord, uh, typically where we have a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the King James, that's when Jehovah, uh, Jehovah will appear. Uh, otherwise, lest the holy name be contaminated. So each then Hebrew letter has a numerical value also. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And each column, when it's completed, must be added up. And the exact numerical value is the scroll uh, must be uh, the equivalent to the, the scroll you're copying from. Each page must also be added up numerically. And the revision to correct any areas of the roll must be made within 30 days after the work was finished, otherwise it was utterly worthless. One mistake on a sheet condemned the entire sheet. If three mistakes were found on any page, the entire manuscript was condemned. Now, critics' favorite challenge is this, that you can't trust the Bible. It's been changed so many times. There's 304,805 letters in the Hebrew Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How many errors do you think crept in over a 1900-year period? If the critics are true, then we'd expect lots. Well, let me read this quote to you. The fact is that after all the trials and tribulations, the communal dislocations and persecutions of the Jewish people, only the Yemenite Torah scrolls contain any difference, any difference, from the rest of world Jewry. For hundreds of years, the Yemenite community was not part of the global checking system. And a total, get this, of nine, just nine letter differences are found in their scrolls. And these are all spelling differences, and in no case do they change the meaning of the word. This is phenomenal. And then, of course, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. What did they tell us? Well, they were found between 1947 and 1956 in the caves in Qumran in southern Israel. And they comprise some 800 documents dating from around 250 BC to roughly 68 AD when the caves were sealed up. Among the scrolls are partial or complete copies of every book in the Hebrew Bible except for the book of Esther. 
And I quote to you from Bill Cooper here. He says, the caves of Qumran are famous for the hoard of Old Testament and other manuscripts that have been found there. But the thing which receives the least publicity, if any publicity at all, is the fact that the caves have also yielded fragments of New Testament books. This absence of publicity, this blanket denial of their identity, is not to be wondered at. He goes on and says this, It was really most awkward, in fact, it still is, very awkward for them. For it means that the fragments must have been written out, copied from either even earlier exemplars, well before AD 68, which undermines everything the critics have been claiming all these years. The fact of the matter is this, that these manuscripts were deposited in the caves at Qumran by the year AD 68 at the very latest, when Qumran was surrounded, the surrounding area uh, was overrun by the Roman 10th Legion. And according to the critics, the New Testament, especially the Gospels, had not been written by that time. I mean, this is incredible, because we have the New Te- a number of New Testament documents in the caves, including a commentary on the book of Romans. Now just think about that. If there's a commentary on the book of Romans... Not only does Romans have to be written before AD 68, but it has to be in circulation so that somebody would even want to write a commentary on it. We've got evidence that the Gospel of Matthew was in this country within two to three years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would argue and contend that there is no book in the New Testament at all that was written after AD 68. And if you want more details of that, I encourage you to look at some of Bill Cooper's work because it's quite staggering, the detail he's gone into and the things he's discovered. Again, scripture, scripture itself has been faithfully preserved and passed down to us. And the Old Testament has been painstakingly copied and preserved. The New Testament has now been shown to have been written within the eyewitness period. I mean, you couldn't write a book today about current events that was clearly wrong and full of errors and, and so on. It would never get published. It would never get the print. It would never, people wouldn't accept it. And it's the same for the New Testament. It was distributed at a time when people knew these things. They verified these things. The Gospel, and again, probably Matthew's, was in this country within two to three years of the resurrection, as I said. Okay. I want you to take everything we've said this morning, bundle it all up, and put it on one side. Because what we're going to do is to go on to what I believe is the greatest mystery. Something that is utterly staggering. And forget all we just talked about. That is undeniable evidence and proof. What I want to carry on with next week is something even more remarkable than all of those things. What if there was a mystery that spanned the ages? A mystery birthed in a Middle Eastern desert over 3,000 years ago that is now determining the events of our day. And what if I told you that this mystery involves global leaders, heads of state, presidents, and many others who have all been working to a predetermined timetable, whether they knew it or not? What if I could show you that this mystery has decided world events down to the year, the month, and even the very day of their occurring? What if I showed you that everything that has ever been, and all that will be, are connected to and are part of this mystery. And what if I showed you that you don't need faith to believe this mystery, because it is etched as a silent witness into our past, our present, and our future? Or would you at least come back next week to find out a bit more? Let's bow our hearts.
Father, we thank you for this time this morning just to look at these things, just to be reminded of the solid foundation upon which our lives are built. But it's not the evidence, it's not the facts. The solid foundation upon which our lives are built is Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that there is overwhelming evidence. And Lord, there is no excuse for the intellect to reject these things. We recognize, Lord, that those that reject don't do so because of the evidence. They reject because of the heart. Oh, and Lord, we pray for the hearts of those that we love, that we know, that don't yet know you, that haven't yet yielded to these amazing facts, to these amazing truths, but the greatest reality of all, that Jesus Christ, you are Lord, you are God, you are creator, and you are savior. And Father, we pray that you allow us to be ambassadors for you and witnesses in these days to let those that don't yet know the truth of the gospel, let them hear, let them see, Oh, Lord, we don't need the wisdom of man. We don't need, Lord, words that can confound and confuse critics. We just need the simplicity of the gospel to proclaim. But, Lord, strengthen our hearts with these facts, with these evidences we've looked at this morning, and give us the boldness to go and live our lives in the face of an unbelieving world. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.